Hello, and welcome to the Highly Spirited Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McNew. I love all things boozy and boozy. So this is a show where I bring you some spirit or cocktail history and a ghost or folklore or something supernatural-esque story. So let's get ready to get lit and get scared. Hey, everybody. Welcome. We're going to get weird today. Weirder than I usually am. (laughs) I am totally into ghosts, spirits, sometimes cryptids, even demons occasionally. But one thing that freaks me out more than any of those put together is aliens. They literally scare the shit out of me, maybe because they seem so human-like, but also so incredibly different than us. It's usually a topic I absolutely try to avoid. I love space, stars, astrology girl here, love to talk about astrology, but when it comes to extraterrestrials, I tend to shy away. They just thoroughly freak me out, but we're going to get into them today anyways, and some in some UFO sightings as well. But before that, we absolutely need a cocktail. And what could be better than the paper plane? It's one of my favorites for sure. The paper plane cocktail is incredibly simple, but incredibly good. and is a brilliant orange color. It just looks good in a coupe glass. It consists of one and a half ounces Amaro, preferably Nonino, one and a half ounces of Aperol, one and a half ounces of bourbon, one and a half ounces of fresh lemon juice strained. Combine Amaro, Aperol, bourbon, and lemon juice in a... Combine Amaro, Aperol, bourbon, and lemon juice in a cocktail shaker. Fill with ice and shake vigorously until the outside of the shaker is frosty, about 20 seconds, and then just strain it into a coupe glass. So this recipe is not as old as I thought it was, not even by a long shot. I honestly thought this was like a pre-prohibition cocktail. Thought it was 100 years old at least. Nope. It was created in 2007. That's the same year I graduated fucking high school. (laughs) And I don't know if this made me feel old, like it's only been 15 years, but I really had a conniption when I found this out because I thought this cocktail was like from 1920. It's absolutely not. (laughs) But it was created by Sasha Petrasky and Sam Ross of Milk and Honey Bar out of New York City. They, They created it for the opening of Violet Hour in Chicago. And if you're wondering, yes, the cocktail was named after the MIA song, Paper Planes, which they were fans of. And that song is still an absolute banger, if you ask me. I actually have it on my summer playlist. (laughs) The Paper Planes ingredients were loosely based around a Detroit Athletic Club's cocktail called The Last Word, which was gin-based instead of bourbon-based. And honestly, it sounds better with bourbon. This is actually one of my favorite cocktails, if it's made by a good bartender. I can't really pull this one off at home. I've tried. I don't know what I do wrong because it looks simple, but anyways, I like to get it from a good bartender. (laughs) So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with some UFO sightings and some aliens. All right, let's get into it. So in the past few years, the Pentagon has actually released a couple of statements about aliens being real, but the world we currently live in has been so jacked up, none of us really paid any damn attention. Where <laughs> They were just like, hey, aliens exist. And we were like, okay, great. And we all moved on with our lives and focused on something else that was falling apart in our world. <laughs> but alien and UFO sightings have been reported for decades. So let's look into some of them. Clearly, I have to start with Roswell, New Mexico. July 1947, a UFO crashed, and I should specify that UFO really stands for Unidentified Flying Object. It could be anything up there in the airspace, not just extraterrestrials. But if your mind works like mine, when you hear UFO, you immediately think aliens, 
UFO equals alien. That's just how my brain works. <laughs> and the U.S. military still claims that this particular UFO was just to test a weather balloon, not the ship of an alien life. Roswell's tourism industry fully embraces the alien theory, though. Like, it actually looks like a fun place to visit. I would check out Roswell. On January 7th, 1948, the Mantell incident took place. Captain Thomas F. Mantell died while chasing a UFO. His lieutenant called, called off the chase at a certain point, but Mantell continued to climb in pursuit. This was near Franklin in Madisonville, Kentucky. The pilot died from lack of oxygen while climbing up too high of an altitude in his fighter jet while chasing after the UFO. Public opinion grew that it was in fact a flying saucer, but scientists tried to explain it away again with a skyhook balloon from the US Navy. Another theory is that the object was actually planet Venus putting off extra light. It's also widely speculated that the object was a Russian missile. And to make the story weirder, when, Cap when Captain Mantell's wristwatch was found, it was stopped at 3.18 p.m., the very time his jet crashed. His seatbelt was also shredded, and the UFO was gone from the sky by 3.50 p.m. Last month, I talked about the Marfa lights in the Texas Haunts episode. Those are not considered to be UFOs, but Lubbock, Texas has some lights that might be. The Lubbock lights were first reported in 1951 by three professors from Texas Tech University. They described the lights to be about 20 to 30 of them, the size of the dinner plates, flashing green and blue fluorescent lights. They reported the lights passed over them so fast they could not have been birds or anything man-made, as they estimated the speed was around 600 miles per hour. This occurred on August 25th, and the lights were observed from one of the professors' backyards. On August 30th of the same year, Texas Tech student Carl Hart Jr. experienced a set of lights fly over him, and he was able to snap, snap a photo of them with his Kodak camera. His photo captured white dinner plate-sized lights in a V formation. The professors claimed that what they saw was different because what they spotted was in a U formation. And this very much sounds like potato-potato to me. Like, I have very sloppy handwriting, and sometimes my Vs look like Us too, you know? Like... I wouldn't, I don't think they saw different things. I think they just varied a little bit. Hart's photo did make it into Life magazine and several other national newspapers as well. The U.S. Air Force investigated these and they sent Edward Ruppelt to Lubbock to investigate and he chalked them up to just being some kind of bird called a plover. What? I don't even know what that bird is. But the actual witnesses still very much insisted these things were not birds or light being refracted off of something else. They definitely believed they were little UFOs. This next sighting is a favorite of mine because it's taken on sort of a lore of its own known as the Flatwoods Monster. Or more affectionately known as Braxy, the Braxy County Monster, and or Phantom of the Flatwoods. This incident occurred in Flatwoods, West Virginia on September 12, 1952. Two brothers, Edward and Fred May, and their friend Tommy Heyer witnessed a bright object cross the sky and land in the field of local farmer G. Bailey Fisher. The boys ran back to the May home and told their mother Kathleen. The Mays boys, their mother, two more friends, and a neighbor in the National Guard all headed over to the Fisher farm to investigate. Eugene Lemon, the guardsman, pointed his flashlight at the top of the hill where the boys insisted the spacecraft, the spacecraft landed. Lemon reported seeing a man-like figure with a round face surrounded by a pointed hood-like shape. Another witness described the figure as being 10 feet tall, having a blood-red round face, large pointed hood-like shape, much like the ace of spades, eyes that glowed greenish-orange, and small claw-like hands with a black body. The figure made hissing noises and glided, not walked towards the group. 
Some non-alien explanations for the sighting was a meteor to explain the light the boys saw crash, and just a common barn owl to explain away the 10-foot hooded creature. I don't think barn owls are that big, but that's what people in this town were trying to go with. <laughs> Whatever it was, the town of Flatwoods, much like Roswell, embraces the, embraces the alien theory and focuses their tourism around it. They host an annual Flatwoods Days Festival, and there's a Flatwoods Monster Museum as well. The Braxton County Convention and Visitors Bureau even built a collection of five tall chairs in the shape of the monster to serve as landmarks and visitor attractions. Bureau rewards visitors who photograph all five chairs with free Braxy stickers. The Flatwoods Monster has been featured in the History Channel and video game Fallout 76 as well. It sounds fun. I would, I'm into some tourist crap. I would absolutely go sit in those chairs just to grab pictures. It's so silly. <laughs> All right, let's get into some actual supposed alien abductions. First up, I have Betty and Barney Hill out of New Hampshire. Barney worked for the Postal Service and Betty was a social worker. They were both involved with their local NAACP chapter. Both seemingly intelligent, well-rounded human beings, okay? They were driving back home from vacation to Niagara Falls in Montreal in their 1957 Bel Air, along with their dog, Delcy, on September 19, 1961. Betty spotted a very bright light just west of where the moon was hanging. Betty didn't think it was a shooting star because it appeared to move upward instead of down. It was also moving erratically. Barney pulled off the highway into a picnic area to get a closer look. Betty looked through binoculars and described seeing an odd-shaped craft with multicolored blinking lights. Barney also looked through binoculars and thought he was seeing a passenger jet, but then later recounted, that plane was not a plane. They returned to their car and continued on the road through the mountains. The craft seemed to follow them and came out by the old man of the cliff rock formation. Betty claimed the craft was at least one and a half times the size of the prolific rock. They continued driving until they were close to Indian Head, where the spacecraft abruptly descended towards them, causing Barney to have to stop the car. The spacecraft hovered about 80 feet above them. Barney got out of the car with the binoculars and gazed upwards at it. He reported seeing human-like figures that were wearing shiny black outfits and hats peering out from the windows at him. They told him, stay where you are and keep looking. Barney threw the binoculars down and ran back towards the car, yelling to Betty, they're going to capture us. Barney started driving as fast as he could, and the spacecraft hovered over the, their vehicle the entire time. They heard beeping and buzzing sounds, and it felt and felt tingling throughout their bodies. They claimed to have experienced an altered state of consciousness and had no idea of time or distance. Then they heard another set of beeps and buzzing and returned to a normal, full, conscious state. They seemed to have driven over 35 miles that they have no recollection of, just spotty parts and making a sharp tur turn to avoid a roadblock. They continued to drive home and arrived around dawn. They both reported feeling weird sensations throughout their body, but couldn't really put words into what it was. Betty was adamant that they not bring their luggage into the house and that they both immediately shower. After their showers, they both drew what they had witnessed. Some odd things they also found was that their watches they were wearing at the time would never work again. Betty's dress had a pink powder on it and was ripped beyond repair at the hem. She thought to throw it away, but then changed her mind and had it examined by multiple labs over the years. The trunk of their car had shiny concentric circles all over it, which had not been there before. They decided to experiment with a compass. When the compass was near the circles, it would just spin. And then it, when it moved away, it would function normally. Two days later, on September 21st, Betty called Peace Air Force Base to report the incident. She did leave several details out because she didn't want to be labeled as an eccentric. 
The next day, Major Paul Henderson called the Hills for a, new, for a phone interview. He chalked their experience up to them just seeing planet Jupiter, nothing more. Betty was unsatisfied with that dismissal of their experiences, so she borrowed a book on UFOs from the local library that was written by retired Marine Corps Major and head of NICAP Donald Kehoe. She wrote to Kehoe shortly thereafter to tell him of their encounter. Kehoe then passed the letter to Boston astronomer and NICAP member Walter Webb. On October 21st, 1961, Webb met with Barney and Betty for a six-hour in-person interview. Barney stated he created some kind of mental block for the parts he didn't want to remember, but recalled what he could in detail about what the human-like figures looked like. Webb concluded after the interview that they were telling the truth and did, in fact, experience an alien encounter. Ten days following the encounter, Betty started having vivid dreams for five nights in a row. She never recalled such vivid dreams before in her life. She told Barney about them, but he seemed to dismiss them, and she let it go. The dreams each night consisted of Betty and Barney being encircled by strange human-like men on a road. The men had dark hair and eyes with prominent noses and bluish lips. Their skin was gray. The men led them up a ramp into a disc-shaped structure where they separated Barney and Betty into different exam rooms. The couple protested, but the men told them they would be quicker. Betty recalls in her dream that the men took samples of her hair, skin, and fingernails, then plunged a needle into her belly button, which caused her a lot of pain. The man doing the exam waved his hand over her, and the pain stopped. Soon after, she was dressed, reunited with Barney, then led back down the ramp to their vehicle. The same dream occurred for five nights in a row and finally stopped. The Hills made several return trips to the White Mountains often to see if anything sparked their memories. Nothing did. They even pursued hypnosis in which, while hypnotized, Barney recollected the experience being very similar to what had, had occurred in Betty's dreams. They were taken to a craft, separated, gave samples, then returned. Barney seemed to recall the being's eyes more, though, stating how big they were and how one got so close to him all he could see was its eyes. Barney also recalled the being speaking in some mumbling language audibly. I could hear them in English in his head, like some sort of telepathy. Betty also reiterated this and stated that she never saw their mouths move when she heard them in English. Betty also underwent hypnosis, but it caused her so much distress in one of her sessions, it was stopped early. She was able to draw a star map of where the beings told her they were from. Betty's star map much resembled the Zeta Reticuli formation, and their encounter became known as the Zeta Reticuli Incident of the Hill Abduction. After hypnosis and papers being published, the Hills faced a lot of public interest. Barney passed away shortly thereafter in 1969, and Betty was somewhat of a celebrity in the UFO community until her death in 2004. Another well-known alien abduction is that of fiction author Whitley Stryber. Whitley claims to have been abducted on December 26, 1985, while he was staying in a cabin alone in upstate New York trying to finish some writing. Stryber claims to have been in bed and was woken by a strange noise made by a small human-like creature near his bed. He woke up suddenly and it was morning. He, he stated to feel disoriented and aggressive. Stryber also went through hypnosis afterwards and recalled further details. He, he published his first nonfiction book called Communion about his experience, but many critics consider this to be a work of fiction as well. Again, in 1988, while staying in a hotel, he claimed to be abducted again. He opened the door to what he thought was room service, but it wasn't. Stryber reported seeing a small older man in black clothing. He claimed the being stood by his window in the room for an hour talking about its creator and how anything more intelligent would be incredibly dangerous. Creepy. Ugh. Another abduction that caused 
an Arizona man to go missing for five whole days happened to Travis Walton in November of 1975. Walton was a logger working with six other men in the Sit Graves National Forest near Herber, Arizona. The men spotted a shiny disc hovering about 40 feet above them. They said the disc was glowing and making strange noises. The other man ran back from it while Walton moved to get a closer look. As he got closer, he claimed that the non-human beings abducted him and kept him on their spacecraft for five days. He claimed they strapped him to an operation table and experimented on him for the five days until he could fight them off. When he became conscious in the spacecraft, he believed he was in the hospital until he looked around and saw alien beings. Meanwhile, down on Earth, Walton was being reported missing and his co-workers were being questioned in his disappearance. Walton returned, like, authorities really thought these guys murdered him <laughs> and left him in the woods. Walton returned and there were a lot of skeptics about his story, but it was turned into a movie called Fire in the Sky. Another weird occurrence afterwards in the woods was that the trees near where the spacecraft was grow exceptionally fast, about 36% faster than normal. Creepy, creepy. All right, I'm going to wrap this one up with one more abduction story, the Pascagoula River story. So a random, random side note. I only know how to pronounce Pascagoula because my grandma had this Ray Stevens video when I was a kid, and there was a song about a squirrel in Mississippi, and Pascagoula was in it. <laughs> it's like a weird, dumb core memory for me. But anyways, back to the story. On October 11th, 1973, Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson were fishing on the Pascagoula River. When Parker first saw the bright lights of the spacecraft, he noticed they were blue, and, it, and they just assumed it was the police telling them to leave. It was not the police. Soon, an 80-foot, football-sized vessel descended upon them. They reported it being quiet except for a hissing noise. I imagine this is like steam hissing, like that's the kind of hissing I'm thinking of. I don't know, though. Parker then claims three legless creatures with claw-like hands floated out of the vessel and began to wrap their hands around their necks. He reports oddly feeling calm and not the fear that they should have felt with something around their neck. They just experienced feeling numbness and being brought upon the vessel for experiments. After an undisclosed amount of time, they were placed back on the riverbank like nothing ever happened. When they regained consciousness, they went to the local sheriff's office to report the incident, but the sheriff didn't believe them. Parker later wrote a book detailing the ordeal in 2018, and other locals came forward as well to state that they also saw a UFO that day in 1975, but they weren't abducted. And this was enough for Parker to feel validated after all these years. All right, guys, that's going to be a wrap for today. Um, check back with us next week. We'll be in September already. Oh, my gosh. But until then, check us out on Instagram at Highly Spirited Podcast. Bye, guys.